Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 494 with Dr. Tara Swart. Tara is sharing the good research insights on neuroplasticity, what it means for your brain and what you can do. So you'll learn one, how to use neuroscience to break out of your comfort zone. Two, the six approaches to problem solving. And three, simple tricks to turn around terrible work days. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, those are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep494. Now, here's Tara's story. Dr. Tara Swart is a neuroscientist, medical doctor, leadership coach, and award-winning and best-selling author. She works with leaders all over the world to help them achieve mental resilience and peak brain performance, improve their ability to manage stress, regulate emotions, and retain information. She's a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management, where she runs the Neuroscience for Leadership and Applied Neuroscience programs, and is executive advisor to some of the world's most respected leaders in media and business. Big thanks to Tara for spending some time with us, and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Tara. Tara, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited about this. Well, I'm excited too, because neuroscience stuff is is always super fascinating. And you are at the forefront of some cool research and teaching at MIT and elsewhere. So why don't we kick it off if you could share with us maybe one of the most fascinating recent discoveries that's come out of neuroscience? Sure. Um, well, the one that I focus most of my research on, because I think it's the most fascinating, is about neuroplasticity. So we used to think that by the age of 18, our brain had grown and changed a lot and our personality was pretty much set by that age. We know now that there's massive growth zero to two, that there's a lot of pruning of neuronal connections in the teenage years, but that the brain actively molds and shapes itself to everything that we experience, every smell, every person that we meet, every emotion that we experience until we're about 25. And that from 25 to 65, we have to actively do things like learn new things, expose ourselves to different experiences to keep the brain as flexible or what we call plastic as possible. And that if you start making some changes in your late 30s to early 40s, you can even contribute towards um, reducing the decline in some cognitive functions that starts to happen around the age of 70. So I just, when I first, you know, started understanding this really well, it just opened up a whole new world of 
what you're capable of doing. And it turns around that whole idea of self-limiting beliefs. And so I'm curious then, so if you're over 65, what happens then? Well, I think that a lot of people worry about their memory changing and they think it's like the first signs of dementia or something. And people get very stressed about that, that and they focus on it. What actually happens from 65 onwards is that, sure, some of the pathways that relate to, for example, sequential memory, so the order that things happen in, they do change. But actually, we have a more super sophisticated pathway to our wisdom and intuition. And my view is that we focus on on our changing strengths and we, you know, we access that wisdom and we outsource our sequential memory to our devices. Yes, <laughs> I already do that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, so neuroplasticity, I've heard the term before and it's, it, it, people are, are really excited about it. And so practically speaking, what does that mean for us? So uh, our brains are continuing to, to change shape and we can have some impact and, and how uh, they're changed. Uh, but so practically in terms of, I don't know, skill acquisition or, or learning capabilities, what does that mean for us? There's two main things, and I want to focus on the skill acquisition, actually. But I do want to say before that, that if we don't think about neuroplasticity, then our brain is being changed by things that we're not conscious of. And personally, that's not something that I would really like to happen. So I'm very conscious of, you know, what I watch on the TV, what I read in the news, who I hang around with, because I'm just so aware that all of those things will be having an effect on my brain. That aside, in terms of proactively bringing, you know, change and flexibility into your brain, it's really about continually learning and or exposing yourself to new things. And the reason for that is that change will happen around us. And some people can find that really stressful and some people seem to ride that change more easily. The more that we've done to introduce change and therefore inoculate ourselves against the stress of change, the more easily we'll be able to deal with those things that can come from left field, both at work and in life. Equally, things like learning a new skill, and my favourite analogy for this is learning a new language. It's a physiological process in the brain, like building a road from a dirt road into a highway, a tarmac highway that you can speed down. You know, that's basically starting to learn a language where you have a few words when you go on vacation, all the way up to becoming fluent in Spanish, if that's the language that you choose. And what I really love about it is that, that the language thing is easy to understand. Yes, if I use an app or I get lessons, I can learn a language. But it applies to things like emotional intelligence or mental resilience, and uh, you know things that seem much more intangible. But when neuroscience tells us it's exactly the same process in the brain, it feels much more doable for people. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear some more about what you said. You said, if we are introducing changes, then we become more resilient to unexpected stressors and, and things that happen to us. What's the story here? Basically, anything new or anything different is seen as a threat by the brain. So the more that we are proactively introducing our brain to new and different things, the less stressful it will be when something happens at work or in life that comes from left field that we didn't expect. So we're essentially increasing our comfort zone with new and different things. Well, that's great and, and handy. And now while I'm wondering if, can we overdo it in terms of, have we come sort of like addicted to the novelty and I, I need to be entertained and have, and have new inputs all the time, or I'm sort of like unsettled and anxious. That's a really good point. And I think sometimes what is an issue here is the sort of words that 
we use in neuroscience and how they translate to real words. So for example, when I say you want to make your brain more plastic, people can take offense at that because we don't want plastic in the ocean, do we? And we definitely don't want it in our brains. Right. Um, That just means flexible in neuroscience. And similarly, novelty is not that unhealthy novelty that you're talking about, that we can get addicted to just constant stimulation. It's just about the way the brain views something new or different. So, you know, we prefer to be in our comfort zone. We prefer to default to our strengths. And it's really about just pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone and increasing the toolkit that we have in our brain for different ways of thinking and and different things that we're able to do. So that's what I mean by novelty in this sense. Okay, gotcha. Thank you. And so then I'm curious. So are there some cool studies that suggest, you know, just what is the impact of habitually doing that versus not sort of what's at stake or the consequences here? I think what's at stake is really just staying the same and then something happening that you didn't expect and us finding that really, really difficult to cope with and us having to draw deep on resources that we didn't know we had. What we're doing if we take on new learning throughout our lives, like a language or a musical instrument or just listening in a different way to how we've been listening before, is that the brain is more like moldable material so that when something suddenly changes around us that we didn't expect, we actually know what that feels like and we're able to go with that more easily. Um, And actually... It starts from from birth. You know, if you've got young kids, then bringing them up bilingual or multilingual is one of the best things that you can do for what we call their executive functions later in life. So executive functions are things like being able to regulate your emotions, especially in stressful situations, being able to think flexibly or creatively and being able to solve complex problems. There are studies that show that children who are brought up bilingual are better at that later in life. So we're not going to get the same benefits as you know starting bilingual from birth if we haven't got that already, but we're trying to emulate that in our adult brain. Well, some things are connecting here. We talk about executive functioning and our ability to have a, a plastic or a flexible brain for stuff that shows up. We had a chat previously with the, the CEO of Corn Ferry Gary Bernison, who talked about how learning agility was like the top thing in terms of a competency that predicts executive success. And and there's a few ways you could define learning agility, but it sounds like it's very much in this ballpark of how do you figure out what to do when you have no idea what to do? It's sort of like there's there's no script or playbook. You're in a new situation and, and you just kind of got to figure it out. And so if you have in a way gotten some some comfort with being uncomfortable and not having a clue, but having kind of gotten it figured out time and time again, you're better equipped to to handle it again when the next thing happens. What I love about your podcast series is listening to these uh, perspectives from people from all different industries and backgrounds. So if you'd asked me the same question, I would have said the ability to, you know, to adapt, uh, you know, to be adaptable and have mental resilience, which is either to cope with change or bounce back from adversity. And to be honest, I think he's just using a different word for exactly the same thing. Yeah. Well, so, and that's exciting. And and I know I've I've had that experience. I think about sort of my early consulting career, like I had no idea, hey, Pete, figure this out. Like, I don't, I just don't even know where to start. And then I'd say, well, I guess it might make sense if we, you know, checked out this and then this and then this. And then before I knew it, I had a decent plan. And then, you know, you do that dozens of times 
And it's, it's okay. It's like, yeah, it's, I have no idea what we're going to do next, but uh, hi- history and my experience has taught me that that's fine, uh, that uh, through time we will get to the bottom of things and, and all is well. Pete, that already tells me a lot about your brain, because if you think about somebody who relies solely or strongly on logical thinking, they could really struggle in that scenario, as could somebody who relies solely or strongly on creative thinking or motivational thinking. What you've done is actually, it comes back to the learning agility piece, which I call brain agility, is you have probably seamlessly worked through several different ways of thinking because you know that one of them will give you a solution even to something that you don't know. So logic relies on things that we know and that we've learned formally. Intuition relies on wisdom and experience that we picked up in life. But there's also empathy, there's the brain-body connection, there's staying resilient and motivated, and there's creative thinking. So if you're able to work through those at least six different ways of solving a problem, you're so much more likely to come up with a solution than if you're just relying on one or two main ways of thinking. Well, I really like how you've, you've laid out a bit of a framework there. Can you, can you give us those quick six bullet points there in terms of we might approach a problem six different ways? Can we hear them again? Yeah, and I actually like to put them in a certain order because I believe that logical technical thinking is so overrated in modern society. So obviously it's there and it's important, but I like to start with at the top mastering our emotions. Because to be honest, if you get too emotional or you don't understand the impact of emotion in a crisis situation, that can really unravel you. So I would say that the six are mastering your emotions, trusting your gut or your intuition, listening to your body, making good decisions, which is the logic, staying motivated and resilient to reach your goals, and using your creativity to design the real world outcomes that you wish to have. So when it comes to tackling or solving a problem, it might fall it into any of these or all of these. It sounds like what you're suggesting is that some are, are more line up readily, you know, with one of them and, and others, you really want to take a, maybe a multifaceted approach to, to get to the bottom of them. Can you tell us a bit about the distinction between trusting your gut and intuition versus listening to your body? Yeah, sure. So listening to a body is actually a sense that we have that not many people have heard of, which is called interoception. So just like the five senses that we all know about, and even that sixth sense, intuition, which we'll come to, interoception is the acknowledgement of the physiological state of the inside of your body. It's how, for example, our kids learn to tell us when they're hungry or when they need to go to the bathroom. So, you know, you recognize the feeling that you need to go to the bathroom. This is about recognizing slightly more intangible feelings like butterflies in your stomach or the little hairs on your arms standing on end or nervous laughter or blushing or sweating. So it's just being much more aware of, of our bodies than we can be when we're super busy and focused on a, an important deadline. Intuition separately is accessing wisdom and life lessons that we've picked up. So it's more of It's a combination of a physical and emotional feeling. What we know about how we lay down information in the brain and the nervous system is that we keep at the top of our mind or in the outer cortex the things that we need to do to live our life and do our job every day, and that's commonly known as the working memory. Deeper down in the more limbic part of the brain, which is the emotional and intuitive system, are our longer-held habits and behaviour patterns. 
Deeper still, we believe in the brainstem, the spinal cord, and in the gut neurons. We hold the wisdom and experience that we've picked up in life because we can't remember every single thing that we've experienced in life. But obviously, we learn from these experiences, and that's how we see patterns where perhaps we, you know, when we were younger and less experienced, we wouldn't have noticed them before. So it's more about recalling patterns from the past that that you've built up through life experience. Whereas the listening to your body is very visceral. Okay, good. Thank you. And so then I'm curious with what we're picking up from our bodies, you know, what are some, I guess, if this, then that, like almost sort of like recipes with regard to if you're noticing that, I don't know, something is twitching, your hairs are standing up, you know, you might intuit or take from that, you know, sort of this signal. Well, there are some really specific ones. And then I think there are some that are very much down to the individual. But, you know, one that I actually talk about a lot with my coaching clients is about how to recognize magnesium deficiency in the body. So statistics show that 75% of people in the modern world are depleted in magnesium supplies in their body. No kidding. No. And that is harming our sleep, I've learned elsewhere. It's harming our immune system and it's, you know, increasing our stress levels. So it has wide ranging effects. When we're stressed, we leach magnesium from our system. So a little bit like if you were training for a marathon, you would eat more protein. When we're stressed, we need to supplement our magnesium levels. Now, you know, how do you know if you've got high levels of the stress hormone or low levels of magnesium? They, they tend to go together. A really, really obvious way of knowing is if you ever get that little twitchy eyelid uh-huh. or tiny little, yeah, <laughs> whenever I say that, everyone says, yes, I know that I know what that feels like and I get it sometimes. Sometimes it can be cramping in your feet or just twitches in your fingers or toes. But that's you know quite a solid sign of magnesium deficiency. And many people wouldn't know that. But if you do know, you can go and you know take your magnesium supplement and hopefully reduce your stress levels and, and, and stop the negative consequences of that on, on your immune system and your resilience. I mean, an extreme one, to be honest, Pete, is that I've done a lot of coaching in, in financial services since 2007. And I've worked with way too many people that said, yes, I was getting chest pain for months, but I never thought I would have a heart attack. And, you know, I've worked with men and women in their 40s to 60s that have had mild heart attacks or, you know, tragically, people who've seen their colleagues drop dead on trading floors. So that's the extreme version of not listening to your body. But there are so many smaller things that we can listen to, whether it's that we're not sleeping right, or we've got these twitching muscles all the way down to just do you feel drained when you spend time with a certain person? Do you feel energized when you work on a certain project? And you're really using that to choose what you do and, and, and who you do it with. Well, well, cool. Thank you. And so then I, I want to get your take then. So this sounds great with regard to we've got a number of approaches we can take to solve a problem. Our, our brains have neuroplasticity, that capability. So if we want to do some smart rewiring of our brain and thinking, how should we go about doing it? We talked about like a language or a musical instrument or, or some other novelty that we can pursue. But I'm wondering, what are some of the the obstacles or best and worst practices, I guess, when it comes to making sure we're, we're molding this plastic brain? <laughs> so I think it's really important to say that something like learning a language or a musical instrument is very attention intense. So it's inevitably going to distract resources from the day job or you know your work-life balance. So I only really recommend something that major when you absolutely have the time and space to bring those things into your life. 
There are lots of small things we can do, even when we're stressed or busy, that really help towards you know cultivating this more flexible brain and mindset. So, for example, journaling. It's a very simple practice. It's something that hopefully most people could you know fit in a few minutes most days of the week. And what that does is really raise from non-conscious to conscious any behavior patterns that might be barriers to your success. I have to say that when I've done a regular journaling practice, which I have spent six months or a year at different times doing it religiously, I don't necessarily always do that now. And I've read back over three to six months worth of what I've written. It's quite shocking to see your own handwriting and your own thought processes repeating over and over again, where you totally expect a different outcome from doing the same thing. And, you know, we've all heard about this, but when you actually see it in your own handwriting, you are compelled to to try to do something different in future. And, and therefore, it's actually a really good way of accessing your intuition and seeing where it works when you go with your gut and maybe where that was not the right thing to do. Well, can you give us some examples of in your own journals or, or those of, of others you're aware of how they said, holy smokes, this is there. And I didn't even notice it before. I'm going to do something different now. Yeah. So I, I'll give you a small example of my own from something we've already talked about, which was that, you know, twice a year I go to MIT Sloan to teach and I often take my journal with me because I have more time there. I'm not with the family and everything. And I was journaling and then I thought, oh, I wonder what I wrote when I was here six months ago. So I looked back specifically to the time that I was in Boston and I had recorded that I was having that twitching eyelid. And I was actually having it again at the time. And so I worked out that travel, jet lag, just being in the plane, just, you know, being in a, in a different environment was, was causing me some stress. And so I just became much better at making sure I took all my supplements before I traveled, carrying my supplements with me and just increasing the, the dosage of magnesium whenever I was traveling. That's a tiny thing. I would say at the other end of the spectrum, the biggest thing I've heard clients and friends talk about is when you've been in a bad relationship for so long, but you still don't leave. And when you just think about it in your mind, it's easy to disregard that you've had the same nagging doubt over and over again. If you actually record it in writing, it becomes just so much clearer. So it's really raised in your consciousness. And I know that it's helped so many people to not make that same mistake over and over again. You know, I think the same thing can go when uh, I need to fire somebody, mm. which fortunately is rare. It's sort of like all those little things. It's like, oh, this is weird. Uh, uh. But it's like, well, you know, it's like you could like sort of make a quick excuse or rationalization or justification in the moment for, for a one little thing. Uh, but then, and you sort of forget that you did that before and then before that and then before that. Whereas if you had a log, it's like, wow, we have... 50 incidents of of this and many of them fall into the same patterns and many of them we've discussed numerous times i guess this isn't going to go anywhere absolutely i mean when i talk about a bad relationship i mean either personally or at work also bad relationships with yourself so for example you know i mean alcohol is is an obvious one but if you want to get more psychological then the inability to say no is one that hugely gets clarified by journaling and so when you say journaling in your own hand, this has come up a couple of times, are you a big advocate for using handwriting as opposed to digital means and, and why? I am and I'm not. I mean, I would rather that people were journaling 
digitally than not journaling at all, if you see what I mean. I think I'm probably just of the age group where there's something to the the handwritten or the, you know, we might talk later about vision boards where I say it's a collage made by hand, but obviously you can now do it digitally. So again, it's better to do it than not do it. I'm a huge fan of technology, but I do think, for example, that if you create a vision board and you keep it on your device, you're just less likely to look at it than if you actually have a physical vision board in your bedroom or in your office. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about visualization in particular. So I want to get your take on, on what's that doing to our brain and the effects we might be able to harness from it. So you know how we talked about anything new being sort of threatening to the brain? Yeah. What visualization does is it makes you go through a scenario or imagine a certain event or an outcome. And because you, when you visualize it, when something similar happens in real life, it's not as threatening because you've already seen it in your brain. Now, there's various bits of research on visualization in the brain. There's so many that I'm actually just wondering, I'd love to get through them all. But for example, if somebody's in a coma and you ask them to imagine playing tennis, it actually activates the parts of the brain that are active when somebody is physically playing tennis. So the whole movement parts, the hand-eye coordination, the social elements, it actually activates just visualizing it, even if you're in a coma, activates similar parts of the brain. We also know that just the act of knowing that something's possible, which is half won by visualizing it in your brain, makes it more likely that you can physically achieve it. So visualization really comes originally from sports science. And the classic example there is of a human running the sub four minute mile. So at one point, we did not believe that that was physically possible. When Roger Bannister first ran a mile in less than four minutes, within two months, seven other athletes ran a mile in less than four minutes. So that's not quite visualization for yourself, but it's knowing that something was possible makes you able to achieve it. And that's kind of what visualization relies on. My favorite story about visualization is a study that was done on people in their 80s. So three groups of octogenarians, one group were just asked to carry on living like normal for a week. They were the control group. One group were asked to reminisce about what it was like to be in your 60s. And one group were actually moved to homes that resembled their home 20 years ago. They had photos in the home of themselves 20 years ago. And they had their visual aids and walking aids removed if they weren't something that they used 20 years ago. Both the reminiscing group and the active group showed improvements in their visual acuity and musculoskeletal coordination after one week. And the reminiscing group results weren't as dramatic as the people that actually lived differently, but they were quite significant in themselves. So there's just so many examples of what people don't traditionally think of as visualization. But just tying it back to where we started, I actually call a vision board an action board because it's not that you can make you know imagery of what you want in life and just wait for it to come true. You have to actively do things to make that more likely. But one of those things is to look at this board and visualize it actually becoming true. And so if we are going to do some visualization for a goal, let's just say someone it wants to be promoted to a leadership position in their company. So if that's the goal 
and we want to do some visualization, how might we go about doing that optimally? So there are actually some exercises in the book that focus on, you know, becoming our best self, as it were. If you specifically wanted to focus on getting a promotion, then although I call it visualization, I would say that bringing in all the other senses is important. So it's literally like doing meditation. You would spend a certain number of minutes as frequently as you can during a week. You could even start with one minute and build it up to five or 10 or 15 minutes. And you would imagine yourself in that corner office wearing that suit or whatever represents, you know, you reaching that leadership position. And you would visualize who's around you. What does it look like to be in that position? What does it feel like in your body and in your mind? What does it smell like? Even what does it taste like? Like the taste of success. And you would basically envision it until you can almost feel it through your five senses and in your body. And you would build up that practice, as I've said, to longer and longer periods of time. So that, for example, when you go for a job interview, it doesn't feel so alien. And, you know, one of the things that I encourage from the neuroscience research is apply for jobs that you don't even think that you could get. Even if you get a bit more interview experience or you get more advice on your resume, it's all building up to it becoming more likely in the future. Essentially, what visualization does is it primes your brain to grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by. That's nicely said. And then we say longer and longer periods of time. How long are we talking? <laughs> Actually, the latest research on meditation shows that transcendental meditation for 20 minutes twice a day is really ideal. So that's not actually that long. I mean, I'm still building up to that myself. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that I am meditating for 20 minutes twice a day because I'm not. Although I would say more and more of my clients are actually doing that now. So I think if you start with 10 minutes, you try to do it most days of the week, you get yourself to daily, you either do 10 minutes twice a day or you increase it to 20 minutes once a day. And you just, you know, it's literally building that pathway in your brain from the dirt road to the highway. It's just smoothing the path, deliberately practice something, repeating it until it becomes more natural in your brain. And then with both meditation and visualization, you can just switch it on when you need it. That's the lovely thing about things like journaling and visualization, that if you get the foundations right, it actually becomes like a superpower that you can use when you need it. And when you say transcendental meditation, is that something other than what I'm thinking of when I think of meditation, focusing on breath and such? Transcendental meditation specifically means use of a mantra. So this is a, you know, it's a religious practice that you can be ordained into, but in terms of, you know, remaining secular and focusing on leadership and business, I ask people to think about a recurring insecurity or anxiety that they have, like, I'll never get that promotion. And to create their own positive affirmation that overturns that insecurity. And then you can use that in your meditation. So even if you just use it when you have that negative thought in your head, or you sit down and repeat it for 10 to 20 minutes, either way it works. I think creating that personal mantra, you know, you can go and, and receive a mantra from somebody else. But I think a really good way for leaders to use it is think, okay, what's the insecurity that holds me back? And then to create a mantra that helps to reframe that. So so the, the mantra could be, I am fully capable of doing that job. Yeah. Okay. So is that just that simple? Something like that? Just literally that simple, whatever okay. works for you in your words. So just what you've said, every one of your listeners could go and just 
tweak that for their own wording and what really means something to them and use that as their mantra. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I want to also get your take on, so you've got some pro tips I understand for if you're having a bad day, you're not feeling it, you're tired, you're grouchy, you're irritable, you'd rather just be in bed. What can we do to turn things around in a hurry? (laughs) Okay. Well, ideally, you would make sure that you're well rested and well fed and hydrated and that you have a regular meditation practice. But on a day that maybe you haven't been doing all of those things, I sort of, I tend to run through a list of things that are usually kind of time sensitive and think, okay, I'm feeling tired and grouchy and this day is not going how I want it to. Do I have time to drink a glass of water? Usually that's a yes. Do I have time to do 10 minutes of meditation? That might be a yes, it might not. So, you know, if you don't, maybe you could just do a quick positive affirmation. If you have more time, do I have time to go outside for a walk or a run? Oxygen is one of the major resources for our brain and our thinking. If we have more time, do I have time for a nap? That's usually a no. But, you know, let's say you had a really important interview coming up and you did actually have the afternoon at home to prepare for it. If you're super tired, if you actually haven't slept, and that might be a really good thing to do. Again, this is very individualized. Judicious use of caffeine. I, you know, I don't recommend drinking too much caffeine or having any caffeine later in the day. But if you've got an important meeting or interview, you might want to have a shot of caffeine just for that temporary boost. If you're looking longer term than that, then things like eating blueberries, having a spoonful of MCT oil or coconut oil are short term things that we can do to boost our brain. Ideally, we'd be doing those things longer term, keeping our brain in ideal physical condition to really draw on our mental resources. Yeah, and I like that idea of how much time do you have and just sort of having the the lineup of these things. And, and it seems like there are probably, again, some universals for all people that are, are good to do. And then I imagine some particulars with regard to, oh boy, if I listen to whatever music, then I am raring to go. So I would imagine there's some real benefit into taking some time to to write up your own, what's my one minute, five minute, 10 minute sort of hit list. Music is a really good one. So I'm, I'm pleased that you mentioned that because I forgot to. And I also agree with writing out the list. So I, for some things, I've been writing the list for so long that I don't need the list anymore. But at first... I had a list of, you know, positive statements for when I needed, you know, needed that boost. I had a list of accomplishments for when, you know, I needed a slightly longer term. Yes, I can go for that promotion kind of self project that you might work on, you know, doing a gratitude list or something that can really like reframe you into more positive thinking. So keeping these lists so that if your energy is really low, you can just go to the list. You don't actually have to think it all up yourself is a really good idea. And whether it's, eat a square of dark chocolate, speak to a friend, listen to some music. You're absolutely right. All of those things can work for different people and you need to know what the right things are for you and the right timescales. So what sometimes what I like to do is, usually Twitter is is no good, but uh, there is this account, you had one job, which just... (laughs) just is ridiculously hilarious i think in terms of like you know people doing like road signs just wildly incorrectly or uh mislabeling things it's just it just 
pushes all my right buttons. And it's so fast. It's just sort of like, oh, there's a joke. Ha ha. Oh, there's another one. Ha ha. There's another one. And then it's like, okay, well, that was good for three minutes. And uh, back to back to something. And I've now had a lot of laughing going on. I love the way that you keep intuitively hitting on these things that are backed up by neuroscience because humor actually has a massive effect on the brain. So even just you sitting by yourself looking at Twitter and laughing to yourself has a good effect on the brain, but actually laughing with somebody else. So imagine you're in just one of those tricky, tense situations at work. Shared humor has a really positive impact on the brain in terms of bonding, lowering our guard, making us more likely to collaborate. So each of the things that we've talked about apply not just to ourselves, but also in terms of how do you positively impact someone else's brain? Well, Tara, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I would say, you know, we talked a little bit about what if you're tired and grumpy, which of course we all have those days. I think that another really important area of research from neuroscience is around sleep. And as a neuroscientist, I do find it quite disheartening that there are still high profile leaders that will say, I only sleep four or five hours a night because just because of the impact that has on so many other people that feel that maybe they should do the same. There's a Nobel Prize winning research now that shows that there's a specific cleansing system in the brain called the glymphatic system that needs seven to eight hours to work. It needs seven to eight hours uninterrupted overnight. And that goes together with the stats that 98 to 99% of humans need to sleep for seven to nine hours per night. I think we've always wondered, you know, why do we spend so long sleeping? And neuroscience really is giving some answers to that. Obviously, I've been a junior doctor. I travel a lot, so I'm often jet lagged. And I don't want people to to suddenly think, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm going to get dementia because that's that's what the research shows. That if we if we disrupt that cleansing process regularly over our lives, that it uh, causally related to the onset of dementia later in life. I just try to get eight hours of good quality sleep as often as I can. If I, my sleep is disturbed for jet lag or other reasons, I take the opportunity to turn myself onto my left or right side because that's the most efficient sleeping position for that cleansing process to work. So to me, sleep has loomed larger in importance based on the research that we're seeing coming out. Wait, so this is interesting. You're saying that if we're sleeping or just lying down on the side as opposed to mm. on our back or on our belly, we're getting more brain cleansing? Yeah. Huh. I never knew that. Thank you. And I am into sleep. So that's cool. It was my challenge to come up with something that you hadn't heard about, Pete. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, Dal, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The one that I find myself using the most is an Alvin Toffler quote, which is that the illiterate of the 21st century won't be those who can't read and write. It will be those who can't learn, unlearn and relearn. And of course, this connects back very strongly to what we were talking about, that logical, technical skills alone are not enough, that we need that brain agility and we need that neuroplasticity. So, you know, it's such an old quote that just applies so beautifully to the cutting edge neuroscience. And you have a favorite study or experiment or bit of research that you haven't already mentioned here? Well, I think my favorite research is that research on the people in their 80s. But I, my second favorite piece of research is it's actually done on rats, but it shows three groups of rats, one group that were kept in a confined space, which equates to having a sedentary job, one group that were forced to run on a treadmill for a certain number of minutes or hours per day, which is the sedentary job person that drags themselves to the gym at the end of the day, 
And one group were allowed to roam around freely during the day and do various types of exercise whenever they wanted to for as long as they wanted to. And that equates to the person who is mobile during the day and then at some times does exercise that they've chosen that they enjoy. And we do see a differential effect in the brain when you do exercise that you enjoy. So there's two lessons here, really. One is to not be sedentary. Um, and if you don't do any formal exercise, then just being mobile as much as possible is really important. Those two groups of rats, the two that exercised, they both got the benefits of oxygenation in the brain, but the voluntary exercise group released more of a growth factor in the brain called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And that factor leads to not only connection of existing neurons in the brain, but actually growth of new neurons in the brain. So that's you know, a very exciting latest part to the neuroplasticity research. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Who Moved My Cheese by Dr. Spencer Johnson. I return to that book every time I have a big dilemma or unanswered question in my life because it uses metaphor. It always just seems to apply to everything. Thank you. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Definitely mindfulness meditation. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They, they quote it back to you often. I would say that psychology having informed business and leadership for so long left some things like emotional intelligence as very intangible. The analogies that I use from neuroscience of learning a language or building a pathway in your brain for any skill, like, you know, even intangible skills like emotional intelligence or mental resilience, that is the thing that people have come back to me and said, once you put it to me like it was building a pathway in my brain and you gave me the steps that I had to do to build that pathway, I felt like I could do it. Awesome. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, I'm very active on social media. So on Twitter at Tara Swart and on Instagram at Dr. Tara Swart with DR as the doctor. Yeah, I try to put lots of neuroscience-based facts and images out on those channels and my book is available on Amazon and at all major retailers. So hopefully you've enjoyed it. And as you know, there are many exercises in the book. I really do think that we need to take the time to do the, to step back and do those sort of, you know, self-development exercises. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say try to change 10 things by 1% rather than trying to change one big thing. So go to bed half an hour earlier walk around a bit more during the day, you know, make whatever tweaks to your diet you know that you need to make, read a new book, just, you know, pick 10 quick things, write them down and just work through them over time. You'll find much more cumulative effects in being awesome at your job than if you try to take on one big challenge. Tara, thanks so much for sharing the good word and, and good luck in all the cool ways you're molding your brain. Thank you so much. I hope you mold your brain too. I really appreciated how Tara explained why visualizing is helpful. Because I've heard a lot of people speak about visualizing. I've heard some cool studies about visualizing. But she finally connected the dots for me in terms of the mechanism that when you do that, your brain feels more familiar with the situation. It can identify opportunities as they arise. And you're not as freaked out and uncomfortable once you're there because it's like, oh, okay, I've kind of been here before in a way. So cool stuff from Tara. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep494 or expand your episode notes or description in your app player of choice to tap it all the faster. 
And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Devorah Zach. And Devorah has got some real great tips on networking, particularly if you prefer introversion. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.